So um, I'm running a little experiment right now on uh, the Watch Dogs 2 simulation uh, appearing in San Francisco. Got a couple things I'm doing. So last night, um, actually two nights ago, I started, I realized that uh, there's a severe lack of, or limitation of songs that are actually available in the game. So they have, um, if you haven't played these kind of, uh, these in these simulations before. There's, um, it, like, Grand Theft Auto, all the way from Grand Theft Auto Vice City to modern-day Grand Theft Auto V, um, Watch Dogs, all these different um, worlds have a, a soundtrack associated with them. And the, that soundtrack is pretty diverse. I mean, you've got different radio stations you can listen to while you're driving around in the car. And uh, those radio stations could be anything, be anything from classical to pop to hip-hop to um, rock to... Um, rap to uh, Mexican or Hispanic music, um, the the list goes on. Uh, it's probably about uh, 12 to 15 different radio stations in all. Um, one's an experimental radio station on uh, on the Grand Theft Auto world. Um, and uh, the Watch Dogs too. Um, now, both of these simulations have a a definite limitation when it comes down to um, what can actually be presented inside these worlds. So, you know, because the game itself or the world is limited to 50 gigs in size, um, 50 to, to 80 gigs, I think 80 gigs is is what uh, the uh, Grand Theft Auto, along with its DLCs, comes accompanied with. Because it's limited with its size, there's uh, also a limitation for um, the number of songs that can actually be exported with this of, of uh, high quality nature. Now, generally speaking, music doesn't really take up a whole lot of um, a whole lot of space, you know. So it's mainly textures and uh, models that actually take up the vast majority of of disk space when uh, when these games uh, are shipped and or when these worlds. How do you refer to them? They're an alternate reality. When these alternate realities are shipped, they're shipped with uh, a, a definite limitation when it comes down to the songs that can actually be distributed. And you've, I mean, you know, in a cycle, generally speaking, I think there's maybe 200 songs. That's quite a bit still, you know, 200 songs that it's distributed with. You know, so, and this also doesn't include the um, audio commentaries in some cases, um, you know, the fake DJs and that kind of stuff that actually appear, um, et cetera, et cetera, that's actually distributed with each one of these. You know, now each one of these also has video clips too. Now, um, Grand Theft Auto has, um, has extensive, extensive radio or TV stations. So you can actually sit there, and I have sat there and watched TV inside these alternate realities for, I mean, an hour per station, I think, is what the loop is. So it's in between 45 minutes to about an hour. And I've watched, you know, probably about 50% of what's out, what's out there. They've got probably about five or six different stations, TV stations and everything. And, you know, I'd go so far to say I've maybe watched 50% of it. And, and the cool thing is, you know, the, the media that actually appears in the world is consistent. Um, you know, like billboards, uh, maybe some print ads and that kind of stuff is absolutely consistent with the uh, the information that's actually contained within the uh, TV stations and everything. So there's a lot of consistency between the billboards, you know, and the information that actually appears, you know, in mixed in other mixed forms of media and everything, and with the um, 
the the TV shows and and uh, radio stations and the information it's actually presented, there's consistency across the line, and each one is self reference is referencing the other one. So I, I find that pretty interesting and everything. But uh, one, so going back to the whole experiment that I'm running, um, Watch Dogs Two, is the world I'm absolutely. I mean, it's I, I think it's beautiful and I love the vibe of it. You know, in contrast to Grand Theft Auto, which I've I've modded tremendously and everything, um, the difference in between between the two is uh, the the vibe. There's something I can't put a finger on that uh, it's got a funky, eclectic um, vibe to it. Not only that, but uh, there's just you know it's just a little bit. Um, it's hard to say between the two. I mean, the hacking aspect obviously is is alluring, and you don't have that capability within Grand Theft Auto. Um, you know, and uh, there's you can do things subversively without actually ever having to directly interact with the people that you're interacting with inside this world. You know, so that that for me is really a big part of the allure. So going to the experiment, um, one of the experiments is can I? I've seen evidence directly that some of the things I'm doing within this world is actually causing this world to I- expand, to change, to in a literal sense, um, you know, create buildings that that weren't there before and everything. Well, you know, I mean, is this is this programmed? Yeah, it's possible it is. You know, um, but is it uh, is it a direct relationship with me and my own influences and observations of this world and everything? Um, and if so, you know, um, can I? can I prove this? You know, so what I'm doing is I'm actually saying, okay, you know, me, the observer, the experimenter, the one that's actually doing the observations and actually observing this world and everything, um, if I expose myself to media, um, San Francisco-based media and everything, and uh, I, I also simultaneously observe this reality. So in other words, if I actually take it and tune into a real station that's based out of San Francisco and um, and leverage that while I'm listening um, knowing that to some degree reality expands and potentially so does digital slash quantum reality as well um, does the expansion occur you know in correlation to my observations you know meaning um, let's say for instance um, I listen to a commercial and uh, that commercial includes Jack in the Box or something like that. You know, um, is there a relationship for the things I hear and the things I see, you know, um, particularly by listening to and indulging in a radio station as I immerse myself inside this, inside this world, um, does, does that world actually reflect the things that I expose myself to? You know, from a, from a radio perspective. So I've I've uh, found a, a internet radio called um, it's a website called iHeartRadio, and uh, iHeartRadio actually has radio broadcasts from around the world, and in particular radio stations, probably about 30 of them from the San Francisco Bay Area. So San Francisco, San Jose, and a whole bunch of different other places like that. So for the past two days, I've actually been listening to, and um, you know, indulging in uh, uh, turning off the in-game 
in-world um, music and instead turning on my own radio broadcasts and, uh, you know, from my, my real world San Francisco and, and seeing, you know, is the indulgence of real media, you know, rather than this reciprocative relationship of hearing an ad based on something that's actually in the game already and everything, is the indulgence in real radio based on my re- real reality I'm going to affect and influence the, the world um, that I'm actually observing. And in other words, um, let's say I hear Jack in the Box commercials over and over again or something like that, you know, do I, you know, do I, will, will I see this effective influence in that reality, you know, directly, you know, um, I mean, this thing doesn't have, I can assure you, it doesn't have any, you know, any of these, you know, McDonald's, Jack in the Box, in and out all, any of this, it has absolutely none of it, you know, and that's something I'm absolutely sure of, you know, so with that, assuredness, you know, put aside and everything, you know, if, you know, the result as I'm watching this is that I actually start seeing it, it's just like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Well, how else can I shape it? You know, because that's my theory, is that yes, indeed, I will see, you know, the direct results that my um, participation in particular, um, you know, something that's relevant towards the game and towards the material that I'm actually watching and, and you know, experiencing and everything, um, is actually going to, you know, set that, you know, increase the content that's available within this world and everything without actually physically updating anything itself. So the cool thing, you know, for me is Watch Dogs is unmodded. Not only that, but I've also learned that <laughs> there's not a whole lot of mods out there. There's only like two, you know, and I, I'm i actually sitting there going, no, why don't I just, you know, treat this one a little bit differently than Grand Theft Auto? Grand Theft Auto, I continue modding, you know, but Watch Dogs, I can actually use from a different perspective as a uh, sandbox, you know, um, isolated. Basically, anything that goes into it changes, you know, is happening in a way that, you know, could be done through external simulation and everything. You know, I mean, there could be any number of different, you know, plausible real-life explanations, such as I have hackers come into my machine that are actually altering this, you know, when I go to sleep at night. You know, or, you know, while I'm actively doing this. I mean, God knows I'm actually on this thing enough, you know, with pirate websites and exposing myself enough to that, so it wouldn't be unheard of to, you know, to to find that and logically dismiss it, you know, from a rational perspective or anything that, that uh, you know, somebody's heard this podcast and says, hey, yeah, let's mess with Q's mind, you know, and boom, at that point they end up going and making modifications based on the things that I'm actually listening to and watching. So... I mean, that's, that's one, you know, possible dismissive explanation to the things I'm experiencing, you know, so that's, uh, and that for me is just, you know, but, you know, the whole fact of the matter is, the trial here is, you know, can I actually, you know, does my indulgence, no matter how it occurs behind the scenes, does my um, partaking of media from San Francisco actually influence the development of the world that I'm actually observing inside the watchdogs? Does it actually cause it to expand in ways? Um, new businesses that are put there, um, new behaviors, you know, by um, by NPCs and everything. So on that note, another thing I had uh, I had noticed before was was a lot of 
uh, toplessness and there was some nudity on the beaches and everything. For some reason, I've seen that completely go away. Now, I don't know why. You know, that's actually something that has me a little bit confused. You know, so what I'm doing right now is I'm actually paying attention to the dates. Now, I ended up uh, looking at... Um, at You've got a sunrise and a sunset within the game world and everything. And um, I'm, as I'm looking at the beaches, I started realizing there's a lot of people in coats and that kind of stuff. You know, so um, what I did was just now, uh, about an hour and a half ago, I ended up paying attention to the sunset and the sunrise. I marked the times for them. Sunrise, uh, sunset, um, sunset, sunrise occurred at like 6, 12 a.m. Sunrise occurred, no, sunset occurred at uh, 7 Seven twelve p.m. and the sunrise occurred at uh, what was it six thirteen or something like that. So uh, I estimated. Um, in any case, what I did was I estimated whatever the time was that it was around the March thirtieth, um, March thirtieth, April first time frame for when the sunset. I actually had a precise time for the sunset and. Hold on, 7.35, that was the sunset time. So it was basically right around somewhere between March 30th to April 4th is what I would estimate that sunrise being, uh, that sunset being. So, And also there's a potential um, fall cycle that it could be on too, I'm not too sure. So um, I'm trying to see, you know, is this thing, you know, programmed to have a, you know, consistent sunrise and sunset every day? Or is it modeled after the Earth, you know, and the Earth basically having progressive timelines and everything in San Francisco's, you know, is it modeled after San Francisco's, um, you know, times, time periods and everything. So what I'm doing is I'm basically, I'm, you're able to go, go to sleep in the game. And uh, that's actually what I'm doing is I'm... I started at April, what I considered around the April 1st time frame, and I figure if I go far enough ahead, let's just say um, one month into the future and everything, um, at that point I should see a sunset occurring um, at about half an hour later. So, or, you know, conversely, you know, if it's, a, if it's the fall time frame, it'll be occurring half an hour earlier. So that's actually what I'm doing right now, is I'm basically falling asleep and waking up. And uh, the goal is, you know, to make it um, make it summertime and uh, see if it actually affects the, the attire and lack of clothing that might be worn on the beach. You know, all this is basically causing me to experiment, you know, experiment with, you know, did they model this thing based on a real version of San Francisco? And if so, is the sunrise and sunset modeled precisely after San Francisco? So I'm suspecting that it is, and that uh, that my the end result will be, you know, April first. Um, because they don't have a date listed in any of the material um, within the the quote unquote game world, um, within this alternate reality. So that's actually what I'm doing is just basically going through and saying, hey, accelerate time. You know, um, move it to, you know, from what's estimated to be about the beginning of April to the end of uh, to the beginning of of May. And, you know, at that point, see the time frame. Is there a time frame t difference? 
you know, and um, similarly, you know, if it's towards the fall time frame, I'm going to be see, see, you know, expect to see people bundling up. And that's actually the other question, too, is is the behavior modeled um, after the seasons and everything? You know, and uh, if so, you know, I, I consider it as pretty robust that they're actually making this seasonal where it's hotter during the summertime and people are wearing warmer clothes and everything during the wintertime. They're wearing colder clothes. So I find it pretty interesting that they ended up going through this much trouble in order to create the simulation. Um, and uh, I don't know, fascinating to some degree too. So in any case, um, I'm on day 27 of falling asleep. It takes about uh, 30 seconds for each cycle to basically, you get back up, you can only advance it one day at a time. I've got to set an alarm, so what I do is I wake up at 7 p.m., um, go to sleep at, at 7.05 p.m. and then wake up the next day, and that's how I'm accelerated time. It's just basically sleeping, you know, solidly 24 hours, at, uh, 23 hours, 55 minutes at a time. And uh, time moves faster anyway, so the, it's not a one-for-one -one relationship time on that, this world to time on my world. So I'm kind of curious, you know, if I accelerate time to this perspective and everything, what's the result that I'm going to see? So it's... 7.02, so 7.03 just ticked down. 7.04, So it's about four seconds per uh, per minute is the uh, correlation. So 29, so I'm on the 29th. So I've got two more iterations. April has 30 days in it. So the expecting result, if they actually have this adhering to diurnal, diurnal cycles here on Earth, um, is the expectation is this thing will exhibit a plus or minus 30 uh, minute difference um, from the original, uh, original time for the uh, sunset and the sunrise. You know, if they've modeled this thing based on a real-world um, times. So I'm going to take this. So it's just did the 30th. But anyways, I'll get back to you with the results a little bit later. Okay, I'm back. I made balsamic vinegar, or balsamic roasted pork loin this evening for dinner, and it actually turned out pretty damn good. So, recipes on a site called allrecipes.com. Anyways, um, someone subscribed me to an internal distribution list for, C for the CIA, so I'm actually getting com confidential secret and top secret stuff again, as well as, uh, they also referred me to Wikipedia links as well, or not Wikipedia, Wikilinks as well, that, uh, discuss, um, something called Project, uh, Cherry Blossom. Now, Cherry Blossom was, according to this, Wikileaks published documents from the Cherry Blossom Project the CIA it was developed and implemented with the help of the U.S. nonprofit Stanford Research Institute. Now, Stanford, <coughs> in my opinion, they're 
they're a little bit behind the times when it comes down to this technology. The man in the middle attacks and that kind of stuff. And uh, let me explain why. It was back in <coughs> 2000 and in 2009, I had um, I had taken a trip over to um, to Hong Kong, and um, while I was actually there for legitimate reasons um, to help shift over the uh, the procurement of the most prudential real estate and relocation division over to his arm, it was named Prycoa abroad. So Prycoa, which consisted of uh, branches in Canada. Um, France, uh, Paris, and um, also was it uh, London and Hong Kong and uh, Singapore, and also one in Beijing, if I'm not mistaken. There's one in um, Shenzhen too. And uh, each one of these locations, these Prykoa locations, was being shifted in, uh, shifted in ownership um, to uh, to Warren Buffett's arm. Um, so he could actually own his own company when it came down to the real estate and relocation. Now, what's uh, important to uh, you know about this was the positioning of the uh, Hong Kong facility was right next door to Google, and it was uh, basically killing two birds with one stone. I was actually uh, sent over there to, you know, primarily to help legitimately audit the uh, organizations abroad, you know, so every Prico facility I was responsible for auditing. In addition to that, I was also responsible for going through and uh, making sure that, um, that more or less that the IT, um, that the security was uh, accounted for, that uh, machines and, you know, particularly when it came down to an audit perspective and everything, that basically all assets that were reported were indeed the ones that were actually there. And uh, one of the interesting things that uh, I discovered while I was out there in uh, Hong Kong was that uh, they had reported um, ownership of 180 assets and they only had 120 there on, on the facilities. Which meant that they had 60 that had leaked. They don't know where it went or anything like that. And, you know, for it was really no big deal from what I understand, you know, but that was just something weird was they had a whole bunch of different uh, things that were in place from an audit perspective. And um, not only were they misreporting the number of people that were working there, but they're also misreporting the uh, number of computer assets that were there as well. Um, now, I saw slight um, variances over in uh, Singapore. Um, they were pretty much spot on over in, uh, over in London, and uh, Paris, they were pretty spot on as well. And uh, this, you know, goes down to good accounting methods over in London. Um, great accountant over there that was actually managing both the uh, Paris offices and uh, um, London offices. And the guy, I just, you know, <laughs> while the guy was a dick, he also, he, he was great at what he did. One of the best CFOs that I've ever met. So with that, that put in mind, um, I had also um, been told to, uh, like I said, check out Google while I was there and uh, do a little investigating about uh, some of the technology that, uh, that they had on staff there. Because um, we had, uh, what we had was we had um, indications um, in the NSA that Google uh, was not leveraging the same technology domestically that they were abroad. And as a result, I was uh, to to investigate this possibility, at the very least in one facility, and that facility was literally right next door to uh, 
uh, well, one floor down below um, Prykoa. And it worked out brilliantly and conveniently, too. So um, I ended up uh, just basically... The funny thing about espionage, particularly when when you're working with multinational organizations, is it's it's actually exceedingly easy to get into a facility, um, to check it out, and nobody bats an eye about who you are, why you're there, or anything like that. So I ended up um, showing up to I, I showed up on a Monday morning. Um, and uh, I just basically showed up and said, "Yeah, I'm here to check out the you know facilities here. I've been sent from the states from uh, Palo Alto, and uh, I think that's uh, where I, where I told them at the time. And I'm just um, basically doing a quick audit while I'm actually coming from Hong Kong over to uh, over to Singapore. I'll be spending a couple months basically here between Hong Kong and Singapore." Um, on other business, but uh, my primary function here is just to check, check out, not at your facilities. I, I mean, I was being completely straight up about why I was there. The only thing I wasn't being straight up with um, was the fact that I actually worked for Google, and I didn't tell them. This is the beautiful part about it. I didn't lie. I told them I was here from from uh, from the states. I am there to do an audit of the organization and everything, understand what's in place from an asset perspective, from a resource perspective, and report this back to the states. I wasn't lying. Flat out wasn't lying. And at this point, um, somebody uh, somebody asked who sent me. <laughs> and again, I didn't lie. I said, Jimmy Gonzalez. Well, I mean, ultimately, he's the one that actually had sign-off, you know, for what I did and everything, you know, but uh, they're just like, oh, we don't know, we don't know this Jimmy person and everything. I'm just like, well, you can call him up and everything, and uh, at this point, it's just like, well, you know, the time difference and everything, ah, just come on in, we'll verify things later and everything. So at that point, they actually, it was literally as, as easily as that. I talked to the receptionist, I talked to the person at the, uh, um, that they ended up bringing up to the front. I think he was a line manager or something like that. And it was a relatively small facility and everything. Now, one of the interesting things that I discovered while I was there, so I did a full audit of Google while I was there. One of the interesting things that I discovered was that uh, Google actually had two ways of getting information from the United States over to, uh, over to, um, uh, over over to Hong Kong. We had thought that they only had one. Now, we had thought wrongly that uh, that all information that actually went through and, and hit uh, Hong Kong and Asia, um, the Asia, what we referred to as the APAC, Asia-Pacific region, um, what we had thought was that everything went through Japan and from there, you know, we had secured facilities in Japan and at that point it got distributed accordingly. Well, they had redundancies that actually were built in um, that actually went through the UAE the United Arab Emirates. Imagine that. And at that point, it ended up coming from um, from the East Coast over to UAE, and then from there it bounced over to Hong Kong. So it was coming. All information from the United States was coming from two sides for Google. Now, this was only Google, though. 
So Google actually had fiber optic connections that were actually leading from the states. You know, um, one pipe we thought that they had, when it, when in fact that they actually had two. Well. What we had also discovered shortly after that was we had suspected that there was a data corruption problem and uh, something referred to here in this uh, thing is called cherry blossom um, is basically uh, something called a man in the middle attack leveraging theoretical physics. So what, uh, what, what a man-in-the-middle attack is, is basically communication sent from one point to another. So for instance, um, let's say I'm trying to communicate with my facilities over in Hong Kong, or let's say I'm trying to f communicate with my facilities over in Paris. Um, the man-in-the-middle attack basically says, hey, you've got 10, 15 different hops. These are called routers, switches, all this, all this other hardware and everything that information goes through before it finally, it finally arrives at, at its destination. Conversely, that information sent back and typically it follows, um, it doesn't necessarily always follow the same trail. You know, the router, uh, the routing schemes and mechanisms that actually uh, go back could have take a different route based on any number of different things. You know, so you logically, you might think that there's basically one route thing things take, right? You know, you might, you might analogize it to a stream and that stream moves in one single direction and while it may hit a few rocks along the way, and you could analogize to those to routers, well, that doesn't necessarily mean the water that that uh, that actually goes down that stream. In this in this case, it's TCP information connection uh, connection information. You know, it could be web pages, it could be um, documents, it could be any number of things. Just because that water came down that stream doesn't almost ever mean it is sent back up to the top of that stream in the same way. So, and if this makes sense, there's a whole different process, you know, for that stream, you know, when it comes down to the real world as an analogy, water comes and it arrives at the top of the mountain, it goes down this stream, and all of a sudden, you know, it arrives down at the basin of the ocean or a lake or whatever and evaporates and at that point it might go back up to that mountain and it does this and in a process that occurs over and over again. Well, that's just a simple analogy but that's roughly speaking how um, an internet connection works and a man in the middle attack places a specific um, it could be a route, router that's hacked or a switch that's hacked, a specific device that receives information at that point, somewhere in the middle, where all information goes through. And at that point, because it's a pass-through connection, that's all, all it's doing is basically coming from one location, like for instance Scottsdale, Arizona, and arriving at Hong Kong. Well, that information, you know, goes through all these different points and if you have one precise point that you know that everything's going through you can actually put something called a listener there and you can listen for basically any kind of communications that you want to if you have proper access to keys you know RSA keys and that kind of stuff you can in a literal sense on a real-time basis decrypt information that's received 
if, especially if, you have something in place that's basically hacked the, the sender and the receiver. You know, and you can actually receive RSA keys, and you can actually at that point decrypt SSL encryption, um, you know, HTTP, well, I'd say HTTPS, um, any kind of RSA, so it could be 512, 1024, 2048, you name it, it even goes up more than that. Um, there's many, many, many different kinds of encryption and everything, and all you need as a first step is basically to receive that information in an undetected way. Well, that's what a man in the middle attack is. So, referring to this WikiLeaks document, uh, Cherry Blossom Project of the CIA, um, Cherry Blossom provides means of monitoring the internet activity and performance, uh, performing software exploits on targets of interest. In particular, Cherry Blossom is focused on comp compromising wireless networking devices such as wireless routers access points to achieve, achieve these goals. Such Wi-Fi devices are commonly used as part of the inf inf internet infrastructure in private homes. Um, now this is something that uh, we actually at the NSA, we worked with the FBI. Um, hell, I worked with them back in 2005-2006 on some of this technology. So um, Cherry Blossom is old school. It's, it's very old school stuff. I mean, wireless uh, types the types uh, technology has been out. Um, I worked on it first back in 19, I think it was like 1995, 1996, and uh, wireless access points were out at about the same time. So, um, I mean, hell, you know, it comes down to it. I mean, hell, I actually worked on uh, on even you know lower end Wi-Fi type systems and everything, well before then. But here's the thing about a man-in-the-middle attack. Um, when you're dealing with two different uh, destinations, a source and a, and a, uh, a, a source, and an or, or an origin, a source and a destination, and these, uh, these locations are far apart, um, you can potentially hack the Wi-Fi um, wi location of a single device, um, but unless you actually have synchronous access in between two different locations at the same time and you have a way to synchronize traffic in between those two different locations the man in the middle attack is is kind of almost impossible to pull off and here's why um, every big network particularly like intel or microsoft or any number of different things and everything like that um, typically has more than one routing point before information actually uh, gets out to the public networks and that kind of stuff. So let's say, for instance, you hack a public Wi-Fi, um, and we actually had a problem with this over in um, uh, over in Malaysia, where we had a uh, the public Wi-Fi systems were being hacked over there. Uh, not the public Wi-Fi. We had um, at that point, I think we were using WPA2 before it was publicly released or so, or something like that. And um, or it might have even even been WIP, but uh, we were using something, and at that point we found the first vulnerabilities. And uh, what ended up happening was we had locals that had cracked the um, the encryption scheme that we used, and they were actually ordering processors um, through our through our manufacturing delivery system over there in Malaysia, and uh, they were actually having processors sent to their places of business free of charge. 
You know, I mean, here's the deal. Once you hack into somebody's distribution network, at that point, all, all you're doing is basically taking something that's been put into the order system, and that order system is just responsible for now routing, uh, you know, to the shipping containers, having these shipping containers, um, you know, wrapped and packaged and, you know, and at that point sent to the destination and everything. You know, all you have to do is basically hack into, you know, the, the warehouse, you know, ordering system, and uh, you can completely bypass any ordering systems in order to basically get what you want. Well, that's exactly what happened over here in Malaysia. We had somebody that had actually hacked into a distribution warehouse for the, uh, you know, for the processors. Brand new processors had been fabricated by a fab plant, and um, they had taken a couple, lots of a thousand, um, and actually had them shipped to various locations over in, uh, over in Asia. And, uh, you know, they they detected this um, late in the game by basically doing a, uh, a little bit of an inventory. It's a, basically a rec reconciliation of accounts for um, things that had been sent out versus the sales. And at that point, they saw, you know, massive revenue problem. Hey, we've got these units that were sent out. What the hell happened to them? You know, um, you know, we don't have any revenue and no traceable revenue for this. Well, traced it down to, you know, basically hacked routers and uh, took them. It took them quite a while to actually figure this one out. And uh, that's, you know, what ended up happening was, um, you know, the man in the middle attack um, was, you know, it was kind of like something that we'd already known about, but we didn't think about the the problems that can actually go in from a capitalistic system and everything, you know, and the delivery of goods and everything, and and basically supply chains, you know. So, well, let's say for instance, you know, you're a vendor, you order something online, you pay, you know, a million dollars for, you know, maybe a thousand processors, each going for a hundred bucks a piece, and uh, at that point. Um, Let's see if I did the math right on that one. Hundred thousand? No, no. Let's see. Each uh, each one's going for you know you pay a hundred dollars a piece for ten thousand processors. <laughs> so you've got these processors that you've just put in you know your corporate credit card or your corporate invoice that at that point gets validated by you know our the revenue checking within um, something like you know within a. Intel's accounting systems, accounts payable and accounts receivable, and at that point, a an OK is put in the system to actually validate that transaction um, for the warehouse to actually ship it. Well, at that point, you know this this whole exchange is done, right? Wrong. You know, at that point, once that's shipped out, there's another validation that actually comes back. To the point, to the sales system, to the accounts receivable and accounts payable, and everything. Well, at this point, you know, once a validation sent back from the warehouse, once this is shipped out, at that point, that's when it was caught because it sits it, you know, because the accounts payable and accounts receivable systems are saying, wait a second, you know, um, you're saying yes to an order that we never said yes to. You shipped it out already. By then, the parts are already out the door. You know, that's the beautiful thing about all this. You know, and uh, there was no way to actually get them back. You know, once it had gone out the door, it was gone. So now accounts payable is basically left, you know, accounts payable and accounts receivable are basically left trying to figure out, you know, first off, you know, 
you know, where these goods went, trying to trace down, you know, the origin. There's, you know, not necessarily kind reciprocation of capitalistic values and everything in China, which is where these things were sent. So this left us in a hard, hard position and everything, and we were actually wondering, you know, what more, you know, informationally um, was China aware of, in particular other Asian nations and everything. That's what actually got us to be to begin investigating um, other companies, you know, and Google was a big one, you know, because we had already heard about problems with Apple and Apple Maps, and Google was starting to have the same problem with Maps as well. So basically those two sets of Maps, a set of Maps for, you know, for China, and uh, the Maps that we had for China were different than the ones that they had. You know, and uh, we saw this with many different uh, countries over there, you know, and Apple had the same problem. Well, the Internet, according, if you're going to, you know, you can't really believe what, what you see on the Internet. The Map problem um, is a country versus country problem about the observation of whose idea of, of territorial um, information is act actually the most accurate. You know, so if China had their way, you know, America's borders and boundaries would be redrawn based on their perception of how they think our country, you know, is geographically. And that's the absolute truth. And the same thing is conversely true, too. You know, so, and it comes down, and same, it's a similar thing for history, too. You know, if a lot of people here in the United States had their way, they'd have China believing that the uh, Tiananmen Square actually happened. Did it happen? From our perspective, absolutely. You know, but if you go over there to China, it didn't. Now, there's a logical, theoretical, physics-based reason for this. You know, um, which I'm not going to get into at, the, at this moment, you know, but the same problem exists with Google Maps, with Apple Maps, with all these different things as well. So anyways, when um, Google, when we discovered that Google was leveraging information coming from two distinct routes um, to basically populate their web pages and populate their searches and everything for Asia-based Asia searches and everything, uh, to retrieve their information, basically to synchronize information with the United States and everything, um, we realized that Google, in to some degree as a domestic organization and everything, could potentially be getting better information than the NSA. And that scared the shit out of the NSA. You know, me, I'm just like going, learn from it, you know? look at it just basically take the time to understand what's going on you know but for me you know i mean i looked at it it's just like those people that you know over there they're just more you know paranoid about things so anyways um this thing called cherry blossom which is depicted on wikileaks um this is kind of a notification this is an intentional leak i'm going to make that clear and it's to bring public awareness to what a man-in-the-middle attack is. And a man-in-the-middle attack, in a literal sense, captures all traffic, whether or not it's um, banking transactions that uh, might go abroad whenever you pay for something with a company and you don't know where that company is. And that banking transaction could be sent through something called TCP IP, and uh, it could actually be routed to you know, a company that's actually based out of Malaysia, which has a dropship uh, placed uh, here in the States. And uh, while they're getting routed the money and everything, ultimately the goods that are being you know, sent are domestically uh, obtained and 
domestically distributed, you know, but that doesn't mean the internet traffic that you're sending with your banking information, your credit card information, um, your personal information is all going across these lines. So whether or not you're a company or a person or anything like that, you know, the, um, the CIA is trying to make it clear, you know, that uh, with these man-in-the-middle attacks, um, you know, basically, just watch what you put on the internet, plain and simple. You know, um, now the problem that we found with the man-in-the-middle attack was something that uh, Google wasn't aware of. We had considered, um, we had considered actually leveraging that traffic line. So basically, distribution through the through the UAE. Um, there's also a couple of other different locations that had been discussed. Uh, basically, if you're familiar with the whole, uh, what was it? Worldcom. When Worldcom MCI ended up doing their uh, fiber optic network and everything, this is actually the point in time where that line got dropped that actually went through the UAE. Well, we had seen some problems because of uh, traffic uh, going to France and France's information getting constantly manipulated by um, by no no other than London, you know, by basically MI5 and MI6 in London. Now we we tried putting a kibosh on it, basically saying, "Look, quit manipulating people's fucking data." And it happened constantly. And how that happened was basically all information that ends up getting sent through Europe first, back in the 80s at least, and then going through the 90s, um, was getting distributed through, uh, through a primary fixed point in Ireland. Well, that was later shifted over to London. And at that point, um, they still maintained the, the Ireland pipe, but, but basically the, the major pipe became to London. But what ended up happening was MI5 and MI6 ended up uh, tamping those lines. Not that much different than the United States and the NSA did with the uh, with Japan. Well, that information ends up um, at that point. London ended up uh, MI5 and MI6 leveraged that information to slowly but surely manipulate the the stream of information it was received to and from France. Now, that in itself actually is classified top secret CLI. Um, I don't want to get into that one, and I'm not going to get into that one to discuss what exactly they did make for changes and everything with that one. But um, in any case, um, when I was sent to, uh, to Paris, um, I fell in love with the fucking place, and I felt even worse about the whole situation, about what, uh, what London was doing with the manipulation of information. You know, so, uh, to some degree, um, I, I actually advocated big time to the people that I worked with over in Paris to basically say, look, if you want to, if you want information that, uh, is, um, unmanipulated, you know, from the United States and everything, my advice is tap yourself a direct line to the United States, you know, and you'll, you'll see in here what's, what we've got going on and everything. Um, you know, I didn't tell them directly, you know, about the MI5 and MI6 manipulation of information that's coming from, you know, via London and everything. But uh, really, when it came down to it, I hinted heavy. Um, and I just made it clear. It's just like, I, I'm not playing favorites. I mean, there's things I like about London. There's things I like about in, in England and Ireland and 
pretty much every fucking country in this world, for the most part, there's something I love about each one. So far, I've yet to go to a country I don't want to go back to. But in any case, um, I just, I love France, France's culture, you know, but I thought that uh, to some degree, um, that they deserved a little bit better than some of the uh, shit that they were getting from the MI5 and MI6's manipulation of their information. And, and one, for instance, was um, while I was there, they um, basically they ended up uh, going through, they were trying to manipulate the labor unions there and uh, make the labor unions appear more powerful because uh, London and in particular the UK and and some interests in the United States were actually trying to advocate the uh, the creation of bigger corporations over there in France. France is, is kind of like a mom and pop, um, very small companies, and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of beautiful nature that they have there by not having big box companies and everything. It's embedded within their culture and everything. Well, they they were trying to actually uh, trying to actually show. You know the uh, the power of the single worker and everything, and uh, they were just doing some massive manipulation. They ended up actually shutting down um, the rail system, and they tried actually demonstrating this. Um, MI5 did uh, tried demonstrating this as a as a flaw with the mom and pop operation philosophy because basically one arm doesn't talk to another, and all of a sudden the entire system collapses. Well, they ended up getting word, getting wind, that this was actually an orchestrated event, and it kind of backfired on them. It was beautiful, if you ask me. It totally backfired on them. What, what ended up happening was they, uh, they realized that uh, the, there was a collusion between MI5 and MI6. There's two different groups, by the way. MI5 is um, more domestically based. MI6 is actually more internationally based. Over, over for the, the two do work hand in hand. And uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, they actually work in the same building. But uh, in any case, um, they ended up. Um, they got caught with their pants down, and uh, they got caught for the entire event, and the whole concept and idea that a massive big corporation um, or entity was responsible for this, and that that group was MI5, MI6, which was kind of like a demonstrating, you know, the flaw in the in the argument. Hey, you've got a company that can actually do this to entire population very quickly. You know, um, that's exactly what we're trying to prevent. And uh, they ended up rejecting it, and it was really kind of cool because I ended up seeing a lot of the pride, you know, of the French while I was there, and it was terrific, if you ask me, you know, seeing some of it. I mean, sure, I was three hours late, you know, on my second day getting there, you know, to the uh, facility. I was working out to a place called Maison Lafitte, which is over about 30 miles um, or 30 minutes by by train ride, uh, rail ride to the west of uh, Paris, if I'm not mistaken, um, and uh, I was actually working right down the street from uh, from that in a place called Chardegal, but um, yeah, it was just uh, the whole event and everything, but the topic of conversation here is, um, you know, basically WikiLeaks, and uh, something I've learned, and part of the reason I've, I've avidly avoided WikiLeaks is it is a it is a distribution source for information and in some cases for misinformation and um, it's really really hard 
to actually uh, determine which one's which. So I've been staying away from it completely until I actually got a more reliable uh, um, information source for this. Um, so this Project Cherry Blossom is basically the CIA trying to play catch-up technologically. It's not that it's not a real attack, um, it, it's just basically, um, I didn't know this, but technologically when it comes down to understanding the internet, understanding um, Wi-Fi, understanding all this kind of stuff and information distribution and everything, um, the CIA is light years beyond or behind the NSA and the technology that we developed over there. Now, to give them kudos, where they did poorly in understanding technology, what they didn't do, what they did do well, is development and research into the mind and mind control technologies and everything, which actually has helped prevent some nasty, nasty shit from happening. They've done a phenomenal job, in my opinion. Some of the things that I'm discovering, that I'm reading about, and that kind of stuff, and I'm gonna, I will discuss and distribute some of that information, but not all of it. But um, it's important to understand, you know, and part of the reason I'm talking about this cherry blossom is hopefully I do have a couple folks from the CIA that are listening to this. You cannot rely on a single wireless access point or router for, um, what's the best word for it? Reliable information. And unless, and this is a big unless, unless you have built something into that router yourself, i.e. Raptor. FBI's Raptors actually does exactly what I'm talking about. That actually correlates information across devices on a real-time basis. You have to have access to all the exit points for a node in order to basically be sure that you're going to capture that traffic and here's why. If you're sending things out, you know, and, and I'm going to analogize this to the stream. Let's say I'm sitting on a computer and I'm at a big company, again, like Intel. Intel has, you know, one IP, you know, for each computer, um, and that IP itself is protected behind a subnet. Subnet typically consists of 256 computers up to 512 computers. I've seen subnetting go up to 512 over to over Intel, and they have thousands upon thousands of different devices and machines that actually sit behind the network and everything. Each one of these sits behind, you know, that subnet itself is managed by a router. And it's a pretty high powerful router, typically a Cisco or something like that. And uh, from there, that router itself acts as a secondary stop to another router that's also internal as well. Now, while sure there's access points in, in wireless routers that are actually contained within the facilities, and a lot of people actually leverage these wireless access points within the facility and everything, they move around constantly. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I, I mean, I worked at Intel so for seven years. Um, 
I can't tell you how many times I got moved every six months. And not only that, but I can also be guaranteed that meetings I had would never be in the same wing of the building. I mean, I worked in a massive building over off of uh, Chandler, and uh, that building contained nearly, what I think, 5,000 people, um, consisted of 27 different buildings, you know, some real large, some pretty small ones. Um, you had access points fucking all over, you know, so wireless access points, and, uh, and you know, basically these things, you know, what I'm trying to say is, you know, let's say I've got my laptop, uh, an assigned laptop that's actually assigned by Intel, um, I'm sitting at a temporary consultant's desk, and at that point I'm, I'm told I've got a meeting at 10 o'clock, um, it's in this conference room, I've got a meeting at 11 o'clock, it's at this other conference room, it's on, on the other side of the facility, I am constantly changing my position and as a result I'm constantly changing my wireless access point and it's important to understand if you that these connections get get basically um, handed off so that connection while it appears consistent to me whenever I'm crossing boundaries between these systems and everything, um, this is because of the routing and everything and how TCP IP functions, to the wireless access point, that wireless access point no longer receives that information and another wireless access point is actually handling it. It's not that much different than a cell tower. The cell tower itself, you've got at any given time basically at least one, you know, up to three in a, in a general sense in a perfect world, you know, cell towers that will actually receive your signal at that point, um, you know, hand it off. Well, you get out of range of that, and at that point you'll get handed off to a different cell tower. So you have to, you have to hack every device within a certain vicinity in order to basically uh, make sure that you get all the source information from that single moving source. Does that make sense? So if you don't, what ends up happening is um, you're getting partial information. Um, you're getting you know, the disconnections, you might, you know, there's a lot of different things that, uh, that can happen that will fuck things up and everything. So the man-in-middle attack um, isn't great unless you're actually leveraging communication, um, unless you're, you've actually got a fixed uh, point, you know, that you're actually, you know, a fixed computer that you're actually accessing, you know, so you know the computer's um, not physically going to move. You know, it's not, not a laptop, it's not a smartphone, um, and the wireless access point that it's sitting, you know, behind, you know, remains in a relatively fixed position and everything. You know, so like me, you know, sitting here in this uh, house and everything, I'd be a pretty per easy person to hack, but here's the thing. I wouldn't be who you'd want to hack. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just saying, that should be pretty obvious. You know, I don't have any money, I don't have any... <laughs> any followers, you know, there's nothing to be gained from me. This is why you target companies, and this is why you target entities, you know. But the problem is, trying to target those entities takes a little bit more understanding in order to be able to, you know, to be able to hack them. And uh, really when it comes down to it, Raptor, that was one of the key purposes to Raptor, is to be able to obtain information um, from a single source, um, 
Now, the FBI might actually, and published online, might try to tell you it's, it's with warrants, but that's bullshit. They're capturing the information whenever they feel like it, whenever they've got to got the time and energy. Um, and they're not doing the same thing that the NSA does. The NSA captures all information all the time, whereas the FBI captures subjects of interest. You know, so if somebody's um, peaked, you know, peaked on their radar, pinged their radar, um, at that point they'll become a subject of interest, and at that point they'll actually start the tapping. But they'll also turn around. They'll they'll seek the 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 warrant in order to validate what they're getting, just in case they got to turn around to actually use that information, you know, within a court system or something like that. So, you know, basically they're using that, and uh, and the man in the middle takes a whole bunch of different sources and it combines the information. Yeah, so let's say, you know, um, me, let's say I'm, I actually get a job and I get a job for Intel. Well, or, yeah, Intel's actually here over in, uh, over in, if I'm not mistaken, over in Beaverton or something like that. Let's say I get a job with them. Well, I can go over there, and if the FBI got a warrant uh, or ta you know actually tapped me, not only would, could they tap you know this router, this access point, and everything, um, but they can also tap the tap the uh, the business interest and everything. But they have to notify the business. That's the key, you know, behind this. So at any given time, the business is always always being notified of uh, of these taps and that kind of stuff. So, in any case, the man-in-the-middle attack is basically uh, getting the information um, on a real-time basis of all this stuff, and, uh, and the goal is to correlate it. So, what I'm reading here about Cherry Blossom indicates such Wi-Fi devices, it just basically talks about the Wi-Fi devices. Um, wireless devices com uh, compromised by implanting a customized Cherry Blossom firmware on it. Um, now, it's important to understand that other companies and other uh, other entities, i.e. the FBI, um, no, the NSA doesn't do it. <laughs> we have different ways of obtaining information that doesn't require a physical firmware. Um, but um, the Cherry Blossom firmware, um, it, it has to take into account the other firmwares that are actually sitting on the system itself and do something called chaining. So... This is not uncommon. Um, it's no, not that much different than chaining an interrupt if you've done that at the uh, device level. Um, so once new firmware and devices flash, the route or access point will become a so-called flytrap. Will beacon over the internet to command and control center referred to as the cherry tree. The beacon information contains device status and security information that the tree logs to the database. To view flytrap status and security info, plan mission tasking. So what they need um, with this isn't just a way to actually beacon the information, but uh, they what they need specifically is scan for emails, chat usernames, MAC address, and VoIP numbers. Um, you can't do it like that. Um, and why? is you're you're looking at um at searches as a passive thing that you're just basically going to accumulate information and uh use it on a on a passive basis and that this is exactly the problem that happened with uh 911 um 
by the time you actually get to the point of actually doing a a trigger um, and passing network traffic to trigger additional actions. Copying the full network traffic of a target, the redirection of a target's browser. Okay, I see. Or the proxying of target's network connection. Flytrap can also set VPN tunnels to a cherry blossom bone VPN server, giving an operator access to clients on the Flytrap's WLAN for further exploitation. Detects the target, will send an alert to the cherry tree and commence any actions, exploits. Okay. Alerts to a database. Okay, um, the only suggestion I have for this then, because it looks like you're fishing for ideas, um, the only suggestion I have to this is uh, is including a, uh, a real-time operator. So this requires the the hiring of an intelligence analyst in order to basically uh, be a part of the triggered actions. So you've got computer-based triggers, and that can lead to some pretty nasty problems. Um, if you don't have a live operator, that can also be wired to as well. So, and the reason for this is you've got high priority items that are going to be coming through. Um, you know, for instance, let's say, you know, this is an old example, does not apply to modern day, but because of the simplicity, it's an old example. Let's say you do keyword triggers based on, oh, Let's say you're doing keyword triggers on bomb the president, and those triggers will, you know, signify a a flag, a red flag, huge red flag. Maybe if you're on a scale of one to ten, um, that for some reason, which it used to by the way, but not anymore, um, escalates to a level ten alert, and at that point requires the you know the the need to contact a live operator. Well, um, if you don't have live operators. All you're going to be doing is, is seeing a level 10 alerts on uh, computer systems, and there's a way to, you know, it, it, there's always somebody else that's potentially hacking your system, particularly with smart people and everything. And that's why you have to include live operators and capability to be able to um, thread this out into two different uh, two different locations. So an event trigger um, occurs to both a live operator at the same time, particularly for priority alerts, triggers to a live operator at the same time. It actually uh, triggers um, additional actions that are going to be computer-based, maybe sending emails to you know particular people that it might apply to, um, maybe sending. Um, pop-up messages on a couple um, analyst screens and everything that might be might have actually placed triggers on this you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so I mean it looks like a good system um, but the one one thing that I advise with this is create your own protocol so with the network traffic that you're actually going to be doing this over and everything don't leverage TCPIP. Um, create your own protocol. Have this information actually sent over um, your own proprietary protocol. Do not distribute this to anybody, myself included. And um, have your own addressing scheme. You know, so I mean, the goal is you're you're basically going to be taking information. You're going to be taking it from a, a source. You're going to be encrypting it, and you're going to be sending it, you know, through your chains. And you're ultimately going to be monitoring this information, everything on a real-time basis. Um, you're going to be logging it all too on a real-time basis. So my advice is make it difficult. 
you know, for anybody that's actually uh, trying to you know, leverage this network. And the reason for this is a simple analogy. Two of the, the biggest um, vulnerabilities in modern day PCs um, come through exploitations with uh, Windows Delivery System, Win aka Windows Update, and um, virus protection software and their distribution mechani mechanisms. Zero days are, are by and large, um, I would go so far to say 70% of the time, um, achieved through zero day exploits actually done leveraging the virus uh, distribution change themselves. So, and, and part of the reason is communication, you know, systems that they use is well known. You know, they're using TCP IP for the communication. You know, sure, they're going over their own standard ports and everything. You know, but really, when it comes down to it, don't do it. Just leverage your own system and everything. Create your own protocols. Um, my advice is, you know, particularly since you're tapping into firmware, do it below device driver level. I don't know how that would be done, but that would be my advice. Um, so anyways, um, I'm going to start regarding these things that I get, um, these occasional references that I, I'm given, you know, to, uh, to WikiLeaks. I'm still going to regard WikiLeaks as basically nothing more than a fabrication of fiction or everything. But, uh, to the CIA and, uh, the working in combination with the uh, Stanford Research Institute, I like it. In, in general, I like it. But the, uh, the big thing is, you know, particularly as a, um, as an agency, a covert agency, the absolute critical key to all this is being unseen and undetectable at the lowest levels. One thing I discovered while I was working over at um, oh, Wells Fargo when I detected the variation of Duco was uh, they were actually using Amazon Web Services and in particular um, S3 distribution uh, to basically upload information from uh, Wells Fargo to uh, to a centralized location and everything and uh, basically do communication back and forth between the systems and everything. And um, S3 is actually, you know, it goes through over HTTPS and, you know, through common chains and everything. Well, you know, I, I at that point, that's how I detected it. You know, it's just basically it's, you know, we've got huge volumes of network traffic that are going from this, but it's coming through, you know, at, by devices that are actually sitting at the system level. There's something wrong with this. Why is it we're having so much S3 traffic that's coming through from that? Well, that's why. I mean, it was just basically a massive virus that was basically pulling all kinds of information from Wells Fargo, or at least it was trying to. I fortunately caught it, you know, but uh, I ended up raising it, escalating it to my boss at that point, um, who was supposedly was an expert with all this shit. I showed him what was going on, you know, and uh, I said, hey, all we have to do is pull up. You know, I, I showed it in very simplistic for, form. I was uh, leveraging Wireshark at first to uh, to use it, but I pulled out something called Sys, uh, 
It was um, TCP view, sysinternals tool uh, Microsoft provides, and it uh, very quickly and easily shows all network traffic that's actually going on on your system and everything, and basically data in and data out in a very, very simplified, easy to understand manner. So if somebody doesn't know how to read Wireshark, and uh, sure enough, um, you know, he looked at it, and he's like, he didn't understand what he was seeing. I'm just like, okay see this this is how much data is coming through your system right here right now right this second you know and this is s3 so he shuts everything down on his machine and it still it's got volumes of traffic that's actually going out for it he doesn't understand it i'm just like telling you man it's your distribution chain it's it's the whole semantic antivirus and everything this is what's going on you know, it's not helping this company. But, who knows. So, anyways, shortly after that I was canned. Gotta love misinformation. But in any case, um... Yeah, Cherry Blossom? Hmm. I somewhat approve. Um, but the key... The key really is the correlation of information together on a real-time basis. I mean, saving it to a database is absolutely critical and everything. But uh, also, fix the terminology. Actions and exploits, I don't like that. Triggers, I do. MAC address, VoIP numbers, we need um, IPv4 and IPv6 information. And, uh... Oh, here's the other thing, Tim. Unencrypted and, and encrypted uh, con uh, content and uh, also encryption keys. So you want to save them both. Um, one thing I've also learned over the last couple years is that um, it's it's possible to there's a new encryption system that actually leverage leverages a false key and it uh, makes the um, makes the data appear it's really kind of funky what happens is there's two if not more than two 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 there's any number of different possibilities and everything where data can be encrypted but there's a simple key that's actually maintained and that's put there kind of like as a um, kind of like a honeypot, um, to basically allow something to be decrypted in a way to basically provide false information and everything. And then there's another level of encryption and everything that's far, far, far more sophisticated. Um, and you wouldn't even see it because if you're looking for something that, you know, for encryption, it's actually lesser encryption. So I've, I've run into this encryption a couple times over the last couple years and everything, and it's uh, kind of like um, the equivalent of, a, of a, an English double entendre. When you say something, and you, know, you can take it literally, but it also has that other meaning, that other implied meaning too, right? You know, so that's how this information is actually being processed. There's two levels of encryption. You know, there's the simplistic level, you know, which basically is for people that are taking, you know, basic RSA 512, 1024, 2048, you know, and leveraging that in order to basically slice open documents and that kind of stuff. Um, but that's relatively easy to slice open and has been since 1999. 
all the RSA shit has been. That's why the whole DNS system is so broken. Um, but there's also this other level of encryption which sits on top of it, which basically lets this coexist at the same time the other one does. Um, I don't know the details on it. All I know is I've seen plenty of um, demonstrations of it in various different ways and everything. It's kind of cool the way it works. But uh, that's what I'm saying is maintain the keys, you know, for this and maintain the unencrypted or the encrypted data and also the unencrypted data at the same time. So that way you just basically have access to it all. You know, you can reassemble the packets and everything anytime you want to. Um, in my opinion, if you're going to, you know, just be obtaining any information, you can never have too much information. It's just a matter of logically ordering it in the right way and getting what you want when you need it. You know, so the ordering systems are absolutely critical, you know, and that's the, the moral of that story. You know, so the beauty about the NSA is we captured all the information. I mean, literally everything that's sent and received on this planet and elsewhere, the NSA receives. Everything. Fucking everything. I mean, I'm not going to go there with just with how many possibilities of information that we receive. This is why, for me, the multiverse is fact. I've seen it. I know it's out there. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, that information is largely, you know, dismissed as fiction to basically make it so where those with more simplistic minds have the capacity to be able to isolate it, disassociate themselves from it, and basically believe the story that's told to them, you know, by the intelligence agencies that are working in combination with the governments and the, you know, the leaders of this world and everything. But, you know, for people like, you know, that work within the intelligence agencies, you have to know that the multiverse is absolutely real. You have to know that information systems can have more information than you yourself are capable of understanding. And you have to understand that the ordering systems are there not just to actually, you know, provide you information, but also to isolate and protect you from having too much information for that little noodle that you got. So, I'm not trying to be demeaning or anything like that. I'm just basically saying there is such a thing as TMI. So, with that said, I shall end this uh, this tonight, and um, yeah, have a good night. One final thing I'm going to add is um, this 1977-78, President Carter announced that uh, the Iranians, um, that there was a uh, attempt to rescue some people from the embassy. And President Carter announced that it was unsuccessful. That mission was actually successful. Now, I don't know the full reason other than supplying with the intent to supply confidence to, fo to foreign nations that the United States could be beaten. But, um, that's my suspicion. In a very public way. 
But, um, yeah, I, I know for absolute certain that those that were actually intended to be rescued were rescued. Sometimes intelligence doesn't necessarily do what you think it does. That's what, that's what I've realized. It doesn't necessarily always paint the good guy as the good guy and as the victor. Anyways, thought I'd mention that.